Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Today has been an extremely difficult and turbulent day. Massive speculative flows have continued to disrupt the functioning of exchange rate mechanism. As chairman, that was Norman Lamont speaking on the steps of the Treasury in on the 16th of September 1992. 30 years ago. Oh, you remember that? that was I'm afraid I do. Black with, Wednesday. With vivid clarity and uh, what an extraordinary day it was. Oh, so Britain having spent whatever it was, two years in the exchange rate mechanism of the European economic community, I suppose it was then, or the community, crashes out. The main policy of its government in absolute ruins. Everyone is wondering what will happen next. Will the Prime Minister have to resign? It's basically, it's a huge historical event. situation with colleagues tomorrow and may make further statements then. But until then, I have nothing further to say. Thank you very much. And it echoes down the decades. It's extraordinary the, uh, the impact that it has had. And you could argue that it was really the last straw for a big chunk of the Conservative Party, which sealed their antipathy towards Europe generally, and eventually led us to leave the European Union. Lots to talk about. There's a new departure for a long time in finance. We're going to not just do this in one episode, we're going to do three episodes looking at the background to Black Wednesday the day itself and the aftermath, what comes next. Well, we might as well just get stuck in. Yeah, the background is that the UK economy has always, I mean, for many, many decades, been hugely prone to inflation. And in the 1970s, it really got completely out of hand and we had inflation which peaked over 25% at one point. And the Conservatives under Margaret Thatcher came in, determined to do something about it. But they didn't really know what to do. And they tried all sorts of things. So if we go back to the right to the beginning of the 70s, we are in a post-war monetary arrangement known as Bretton Woods, which links the pound to a, what's called an anchor, which was in that case the value of gold through the American dollar. But the Americans break that system up. They've had enough of it. So... As you say, we spend the 70s with the pound just floating, lots of inflation, terrible time. So we end up with very high real interest rates and a very high pound, partly because North Sea oil comes on stream in the early 80s. The oil price is very high. The pound shoots up and most of British industry pretty much turns its face to the wall and dies at that (laughs) point. And you have 3 million unemployed, which is the highest level since the 1930s. And causes enormous conniptions in not just the Labour Party, but the Conservative Party, which is very split on whether this is a good idea. But by the mid-80s, it seems to have worked, and inflation has been reduced. Yes, I wouldn't say it's been eliminated. It's been sort of tamed, Yeah, but it's still a problem. The government starts to cautiously try to speed up the rate of economic growth. They say, well, let's have a bit of a boom. And Nigel Lawson, who's the Chancellor at the time, cuts taxes, he reforms them, interest rates come down. And of course, the oil price is falling in the mid 80s. So the economy picks up quite sharply. But the problem is, 
inflation immediately starts to rear its ugly head again. And this is the point, I think, when the government starts to think about, or certainly Lawson starts to think about, whether there is a new monetary anchor which he can use to try and bring down inflation without having a rerun of the early 1980s. And the way he thinks about trying to do this is to initially do what's called shadow the Deutschmark. So effectively, he starts to move interest rates in order to preserve the pound's value against the Deutschmark. And that then leads on to the exchange rate mechanism. And maybe it's worth just saying at this point, what was the ERM exactly, The exchange rate mechanism was a system whereby the currencies of Europe could move within a very narrow band against the Deutschmark. So it was designed to sort of smooth out fluctuations and limit fluctuations between them. And also to ensure that there was responsible monetary behaviour in some of the southern European countries which had been prone to inflation. Similar sort of problems to the UK. And and the other thing, of course, is that the ERM's anchor, the, the anchor within the system is the German currency, the mark. And Germany is almost unique at this point in having an independent central bank. So the central bank runs its own affairs. And basically, it has this fantastic sort of credibility because German inflation during the 70s, which was a terrible time, has been pretty low and they're seen to be pretty rigorous. I think that the Bundesbank was set up with very strong independence because of the hyperinflation in Germany, which uh, was in well in living memory at the time. So that... Well, in the 1920s? Yes. Well... Were we... <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll but find in your living but, memory <laughs> <laughs> almost yeah but uh, I think that was the reason why it was set up in that way yes okay so you talked about the currencies or the countries of southern Europe which had bad inflation they did join when it was created in the 1979 I think but Britain did not Britain said we don't want to be in the ERM we, we're quite happy to carry on floating I think it's certainly true to say that Mrs Thatcher was extremely sceptical about the idea of tying the pound to other countries. I think there was a sort of more visceral underlying reason that she didn't like the idea of being beholden to the Germans. Right, she didn't want other countries setting British interest rates, effectively. Back to the late 80s, basically, Nigel Lawson is shadowing the Deutsche Bank. Mrs Thatcher is still very much around, although at this stage, becoming a little less popular with not only the public, but with their own party. And there are a series of wars over European policy, and in particular, whether we should go into the exchange rate mechanism as a way of solving this problem of Britain's recurrent inflation. Those sort of go on for quite a long time, don't they? Oh, there was was a lot of this, yes. It's so... As, as you know, we talked to Sir Paul Tucker, who was the governor of the Bank of England's private secretary, very close to these events, about the whole question of why the ERM became such a sort of touchstone. Here, he's going to explain why he thinks the government changed its mind in the late 80s, or at least the bits of the government that wasn't the prime minister, Mrs. Thatcher, changed its mind and became very open to the idea of this radical move of basically allowing the Germans, as you say, to set our interest rates. The decision to join the ERM 
was very interesting and almost a case study in how government can sometimes work. It was a decision taken in a way in desperation. You're making this podcast during a period where there's lots of debate about UK macroeconomic policy and a number of times people have referred back to how Margaret Thatcher was committed to sound money. And I think the truth is that Margaret Thatcher would like to have been committed to sound money, but could never actually stick to sound money. And the consequence of this during the 1980s was that Treasury-led monetary policy and Downing Street-led monetary policy jumped around from 1979 from relying on one monetary target and then another monetary target and then a couple of monetary targets together and then an abandonment of monetary targets. And then, oh my goodness, we're still having inflation under control. It didn't get much below 5% and then started rising again. We'll have to hitch ourselves to those Germans, to the Bundesbank. And a piece missing was that as the 1980s progressed, the then Chancellor Nigel Lawson was promoting the idea of Bank of England independence to the then Prime Minister, Prime Minister Thatcher. And she wasn't having it. When I was Governor's Private Secretary at the Bank of England to Robin Lee Pemberton, at one point, Alex Allen, who was Principal Private Secretary, Chancellor, phoned and read, for me only, the notes he had taken or had of a meeting between Lawson and Thatcher, where Lawson set out the case for Bank of England independence. And she, she wasn't having it. And there was nothing left. Treasury trying out intermediate targets of various degrees of complexity and opacity hadn't worked. And therefore, it was, if we are actually going to conquer inflation, and if we can't trust the politicians to do that, and if we're not prepared to give it to the Bank of England, well, then we'd better hitch our, ourselves to the, to the Bundesbank. I think it was a decision taken out of despair. It's worth noting from what he says, you know, how radical this suggestion is, because, as you've said, the Bundesbank is an independent central bank. Britain has this tradition that it's politicians who set interest rates. They decide when to move the rates at the Bank of England. Which at the time seemed a sort of natural order of things. And I don't think that the expression an independent Bank of England appears anywhere in any sort of commentary at the time, because I don't think it was really ever suggested until very close to the departure from the ERM. When Nigel Lawson is still, he's still Chancellor, he's trying to persuade Mrs Thatcher of the idea of joining the ERM, he basically says, well, of course, we could make the Bank of England independent. And she says, over my dead body or something on those. <laughs> so it is considered very, very briefly. But I think the real point about the radical nature of this policy is everyone apart from Mrs. Thatcher at this stage in the late 80s seems to be in favour of moving from a situation where they control interest rates to not only a situation where they've handed that power over to somebody else, but they've handed it to an independent central bank, the Bundesbank. That is a, a massive shift. And you sort of wonder whether they really understood exactly how radical a change it would be to the way that the economy was run. I don't think they understood this at all. You know, there are two things that, that you can do. You can control your own interest rates or you can control your currency but you cannot do both. And that is a sort of essential tenet of economics, which I don't think that the cabinet at the time really understood. 
Late 1980s, there's a huge series of battles. They're not just about the ERM, they're about other things which Mrs Thatcher is doing. She's become quite unpopular with the public and she is at war with her Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is never a good look in the British system. And in October 1989, frustrated by the fact that he cannot persuade Mrs Thatcher and he feels that she is undermining his economic policy, Nigel Lawson resigns and Mrs Thatcher promotes a little-known <laughs> cabinet minister who weirdly is foreign secretary at that stage, but is still little-known, <laughs> called John Major. <laughs> little-known then and now, I think. <laughs> John Major becomes Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he is mad keen on uh, the ERM and joining it. Well, you see, I'm interested in John Major because I think my theory is that John Major basically comes in, he's very ambitious, and he decides that his signature economic policy at this time when inflation is running up and there's a general malaise in the government is to solve this problem and bring Britain into the ERM. And Mrs Thatcher is obviously weakening by the hour because she's become much, much more unpopular and, and the Conservative Party has become dubious about whether she should lead them into the next election. He, in the end, sells the ERM quite effectively to her as, as a way to relaunch her premiership and show that she is prepared to listen to the rest of the cabinet and she's actually a wise leader. This great achievement takes place on October the 3rd, 1990. They do it the next morning and there's no discussion with the Europeans. They're just told that Britain is now joining the ERM at the, at, at the, rate, at of the, the rate of the day, which is two, absolutely two Deutschmarks 95. When you think about it, it is absolutely bizarre way of taking these important decisions. So two things around that. So there's some surprise in Europe that Britain has joined and just announced it's basically joining at this central rate of 2.95, which is seen as quite a demanding rate for sterling to live with. A lot of Europeans said, well, we're a bit surprised. You know, John Majors has called us up. And when we said, well, don't you want to negotiate the rate? He said, certainly not. It's already done. What do you think of that? Do you think we missed a trick there? I think we certainly missed a trick with hindsight. But at the time, it was an ideological decision. In a way, it was vindicated very soon afterwards because Major won the next election. Yeah, uh, so, so it looked like a great triumph at the time. The other thing, of course, about that particular day, the 3rd of October, was that it was a big day in Germany. Ah, yes. No <laughs> longer the, two Germanies. Yeah. <laughs> so Germany reunifies the day Britain decides to join the exchange rate mechanism. And basically, of course, that comes to play an important role in the whole story. I think I'd say that that was a central role in the whole story because the price of unification with East Germany was parity with the Deutschmark. And in order to stop inflation running away at this takeover, which was clearly at the wrong price at the time, the Bundesbank put up interest rates. We also talked to Paul Tucker about unification and what it meant for the German economy. And this is basically what he had to say about that. German unification had a profound effect, not just on where the UK ended up, but the whole of continental Europe. The response was a vast amount of public spending in the eastern parts of the unified Germany to improve its infrastructure. And I mean, it was remarkable. I accompanied the governor very shortly afterwards and motorways had been built where there hadn't been motorways. All sorts of things were happening. And of course, this was a, an injection of demand into the economy that Deutschmark needed to appreciate in real terms in order to keep the German economy in, in balance. But the best way of doing that as well, the simplest way of doing that, 
would have been for Germany to revalue within the ERM against everybody else, everybody else. And they weren't having that, but they had to get their real appreciation. And the only way they could do that was to have, for Germany, to have higher inflation than all of the other members of the ERM. So here we are, Britain's now in the ERM. And almost immediately afterwards, despite the fact she's tried to show how broad-minded she is, Mrs. Thatcher falls anyway. Who succeeds her? Well, it's John Major. (laughs) And uh, so it's all panned out pretty well for him. And he goes round at this stage, because in the early days of the ERM, it looks as if we've managed to pull off this miracle. We've kind of got the credibility at the Bundesbank, so we don't have to raise interest rates that much. And inflation is sort of not going up anymore. So Major goes around make, giving lots of speeches saying, clever old me, it was my idea. <laughs> Remember whose name was over the door of the ERM, which, of course, in the long run, comes to be a bit more of a problem from his perspective. <laughs> a bit of an albatross in the end. But as we discussed earlier, there's sort of behind the scenes, there is something profound going on, which is that we've outsourced our interest rates. And basically, the government, which has historically taken the decision, is no longer in control. There's a real doubt about whether anyone really understands what that means. No, I don't think they did for a minute. They thought that just tying sterling to the Deutschmark, the credibility of the Deutschmark would rub off on sterling and everything would be fine. Yeah, and then we had a chat with Paul Tucker and, and this is what he had to say about that side of it. After the UK entered the ERM, there was a kind of debate partly played out in public about what this meant. and the governor gave a speech saying this is a discipline which will mean maintaining the peg over domestic monetary conditions. And he explained how that would kind of affect what wage setting and price setting. And the FT ran a leader, which of course I haven't seen for over 30 years, which said the governor of the bank is the only person that's spelling it out. The reason that mattered is that as time went on, it became apparent that in both the Treasury and number 10, I suspect, but certainly in the Treasury, And in much of the bank, people wanted their cake and eat it. They wanted to be in the RM, but they still wanted to run domestic monetary policy. As he says, a bit like you, they wanted to have their cake and eat it. Yes, an early example of cakeism. Yes, which always ends well, I find. (laughs) (laughs) But Germany is absorbing the effects of reunification, and the Bundesbank does, when it sees inflation in Germany starting to rise, does exactly what it's always been designed to do. It starts to raise interest rates, just as the UK is sliding into recession, and it has to raise its own rates, despite the fact that the economy is tailing off very quickly. And basically, that means the recession deepens. One of the things which is new about this recession is basically comes about because of one of Mrs. Thatcher's revolutions in the 1980s is to expand home ownership. And there are millions of people who are owning their first home, which they've taken on mortgages. And the fact that you have these big sort of expansion of the mortgage market, lots more people have borrowed lots more money, it turns house prices into an incredibly toxic issue and this sort of concept of negative equity. So we talked to an economic historian, Duncan Weldon, about this, and he explained why basically the recession of the early 90s becomes such a worry, if you like, to the government and chancellors because they have these millions of people who are suddenly facing hardship. Really on the back of things like right to buy for council houses in the 1980s, you know, hugely expands home ownership in Britain. 
the banks really moving into the mortgage market alongside the building societies, a much more mortgaged country, British households much more exposed to changes in interest rates by the late 80s, the early 90s, than they really have been in the past. You know, as recently as the 1960s, you know, changes in interest rates don't make a huge difference to many households because having a mortgage, being a homeowner is still sort of, you know, not where most people are. So rising home ownership, more exposure to interest rates. So the moment you start to see interest rates going up, really from 1991, 1992 onwards, you start to see this immediate hit to household incomes. And then you start to see house prices fall materially. And, you know, that's when we start hearing about negative equity in Britain as a big thing for really the, um, the first real time that it's a major issue. What major thought was the acid test was the result of the election in 92. Rather against many people's expectations, <laughs> he won it, yes. which must have cemented his view that he was right about the ERM. And not only is the election a victory a big thing, but of course, in the manifesto which the Conservatives put out, they made a big thing about their fight against inflation. So it contained quotes such as, membership of the ERM is now central to our counterinflation discipline, and also pledged to move the UK to narrower bands. So the pound would only be allowed to fluctuate. I think it was 6% with the bands when we joined in 1990. I think they were going to go to 2%. So it was going to be an incredibly tightly pegged, so this very aggressive central point of entry. I think it was hubristic. Do you think they just thought it was over? We we got through all this. Yes, I I, I think they did. And they'd just been vindicated by the election result. Well, actually, they were completely wrong because immediately after the election, things start going seriously wrong. Britain is hoping to bring down interest rates because the recession is over. You know, as you say, Major has won his election. He can hopefully bask in a recovery. But the Germans carry on raising interest rates. In the summer of 1992, they put them up to almost 10 percent. When they raise interest rates in the summer of 1992, sterling starts to come under a lot of pressure. I suppose we ought to say a bit about the Chancellor of the Exchequer under John Major. Norman Lamont. Who's this figure from a sort of Greek tragedy, Norman Lamont. (laughs) From the Shetlands. Is he from the Shetlands, yes. (laughs) He's got these tremendous black eyebrows and white hair, so he looks a bit like a badger. And (laughs) Anyway, so he is in this weird position. Basically, he's not really a true believer in the ERM policy. He thinks it's a bit mad. But basically, he's taken this job as Chancellor under John Major, who, of course, is mad keen on, because it's his great idea, the ERM, and he has to defend it publicly. And as the summer of 1992 wears on, he starts to realise, A, this policy is, one, he doesn't believe in, two, it's basically going to hell in a handcart. He's like a kind of frog trapped in a cauldron, and the cauldron is heating up. Yeah, uh, the but mar- un- unlike the normal frog, this frog <laughs> knows it's going to get boiled and is a bit sad about it. So he, he kind of the frog inquires whether there are ways in which he can exit the cauldron. And in the summer of '92, he asks his private office for a secret paper. So we talked to Jonathan Portes, who was in the private office of Norman Lamont. And he explained how he was asked, along with Jeremy Hayward, later the Cabinet Secretary, they were asked to come up with suggestions of what the UK should, the government should do if the ERM continued to be such a complete nightmare. Jeremy Hayward and I wrote him a note saying, this isn't working, we need to get out. 
how do we do that? Probably the uh, the only option available is a significant devaluation within the ERM. We need to cut interest rates, so we need to we would need to devalue sufficiently that the pound would be stable at a level of interest rates that was consistent with which was appropriate given British domestic economic conditions. Where at that time we were in a recession. So that probably meant quite a significant devaluation. And we probably need to widen the ERM bands as well. So we wrote him a note saying, look, you know, if you want an escape route, you need to be thinking about something along these lines. We didn't do quite this quite behind the back of the permanent secretary, Terry Burns. You know, I think Jeremy told Terry this was going on, but this was clearly not sort of official treasury advice because Terry certainly didn't want anything on paper. You know, it, you know, it wasn't our job. So basically what Norman Lamont is told by Paul Tez and Jeremy Hayward is this is going to end badly. And basically he reads this and then he comes back and this is Jonathan Paul Tez talking about what Norman Lamont says. After we delivered this note, Norman came to us and said, I've read this. I agree with the analysis. I just can't do it. Politically, and given where the prime minister is, we have to stick with the current policy. And my job was a speechwriter. And he said, I want to go and make a speech, pinning my colours to the mast, effectively, even though I don't believe it, making the best case that we can possibly make for the ERM. So I wrote a speech, which I think was given in about June of 1992, where Lamont really went out and said, we have to stick with the ERM, even if it's painful, it's the right thing to do. Anything else would be a complete disaster. So basically what he's really saying is he's saying, you know, I'm on this train and it's steaming down the railroad <laughs> towards the buffers. The brake has just has come got... off in my hand. So good luck, passengers. It hasn't, it hasn't got a boiling frog in the, uh, <laughs> in the engine well, room. Well, I, there, is a, there is also a boiling frog. Okay, so he's a boiling frog in a railway train that's going towards but the buffers. I, I would, I would, yeah, I would <laughs> say that the... the analogy. The, the, <laughs> the heat is provided, obviously, as always, by the markets because yes. it became increasingly obvious that it was unsustainable. Yep. However, enthusiastically, Major and his reluctant Chancellor spoke up in favour of it. And that's the point. So over the summer, as the storm clouds gather, <laughs> they basically spend their time, they spend over the railway train that's going towards the buffers, <laughs> they spend their time giving increasingly frantic speeches saying, we're never ever going to do two things, which are the only two things in their power to avoid disaster. One is to raise interest rates. Not going to do that. And second is to devalue. We're never going to do that either. So basically, they have completely lashed themselves to the master's policy. They even borrowed money in Deutschmarks as a demonstration. Joe, we're going to really lose a lot yeah, of money here. Exactly, as a demonstration. Yeah. Well, we wouldn't be borrowing this if we were going to leave the ERM. But that's interesting because in a way, I think, you see, that telegraphs not strength but weakness because doing all these increasingly frantic things, claiming their loyalty, as you say, the markets are not showing any signs of being impressed by any of this. No, absolutely. They're just basically carrying on to turning yeah. up the heat to see um, what happens next. I remember coming back from my holidays in early September and being asked what I thought was going to happen next. I just said, it's unsustainable. I don't know exactly when it's going to fall apart, but it is bound to fall apart because it's a one-way bet against Sterling. There is no downside in this bet. 
only upside. And so people were piling in and Bank of England was losing reserves. It's worth also at this point bringing in another kind of dimension to this tremendous storm cell that is brewing over Threadneedle Street, which is Europe is going through the ratification of this Maastricht Treaty, which is designed, among other things, to bring about monetary union. Monetary union, of course, plays into the ERM because it's the final stage of the ERM kind of leads on. And this idea that all these currencies, which are going to be squudged into the euro as it finally becomes, they will all converge. And therefore, convergence to the markets is all about narrowing the bands of the ERM and going to nothing and then turning into a single currency. And then in June of 1992, the Danes throw a whopping great spanner in the works because they reject the Maastricht Treaty in a referendum, which astonishes everybody. And all of a sudden, everyone says, oh, I don't know, maybe this isn't going to happen after all. And maybe the currencies, rather than squunching together, are going to bounce back and EMU will be abandoned as a pointless exercise or an unachievable exercise. With all this turbulence going on, the fundamental problem remains the same. The UK economy is in a mess, needs lower rates, as you say. It's all unsustainable, but it can't get them inside the ERM and it won't leave the ERM or devalue, which means that the UK has one last kind of rope to hang on to. God, it's no longer on a railway throw... train. It's now, it's now in a lifeboat. I would <laughs> Sinking say... lifeboat. <laughs> no. I'd say it's the last throw of the dice, the desperate okay, throw of all right. the dice. So it's in a railway train I with think, dice. I think on I a prefer... frog in a boiling <laughs> cauldron with dice, which is throwing into the bottom of the cauldron. <laughs> but it's basically, absolutely, its last hope is that Germany does something to help it. And we all know that those sort of hopes end well. In early September... Britain hosts this meeting of European finance ministers. It's in Bath on the 4th of September. And Lamont goes down because he's he's the host. And in this very grand, the very grand, you know the assembly, you've probably been to the assembly rooms in Bath. They're fantastically grand. And he basically goes into this meeting and he says to Schlesinger, brackets, independent head at the Bundesbank, you've got to cut your rates. And he doesn't just say you've got to cut your rates. You've got to cut your rates on Monday, which is the basically three days away. <laughs> and Schlesinger, the meeting is just a total fiasco. He asks him four times. Schlesinger says, I think he just evades the question. He gets very, very cross and he's, he's asked about it afterwards and he says, I'm not an employee of Norman Lamont. And he gets so cross that he says to Theo Weigel, who is the German finance minister in Bavarian, which they both speak, so no one can, even German speakers can't really work out what the hell they're talking about. He says, I'm going to walk out. And Weigel turns to Lamont and says, you can carry on asking the question, but you'll always get the same answer. And so it's really embarrassing and a disaster. And all it does is create lots of bad blood and doesn't achieve anything. So it's a disaster. All avenues, it seems to me, are now completely closed. <laughs> they've, they've basically completely boxed themselves in. So in this first episode, we've seen how a search for a solution to one problem inflation simply created another one the need to prop up an overvalued currency and how that deepened the UK's recession we've also seen how politicians hubristically denied every possibility of a great reckoning next week in part two which will be on Tuesday rather than Friday we will look at how the markets took their revenge <laughs> 
That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. Join us again next week. 